You're listening to Writers Forum, and I'm your host, Mike Tusa. Today, I'm pleased to be interviewing Laura Helen Marks, uh, Tulane professor, and we'll be discussing her provocatively titled book, Alice in Pornland. Welcome to the show, Laura. Hi, it's nice to be here. Okay. Well, you know what? Let's jump right in and start off with a clarification for our listeners. This is not a novel with a plot and characters and some woman named Alice, correct? No, no, it's not. Okay. Rather, as the book indicates, it's a study of the, and this is your quote, quote, the seesawing gender dynamics in Victorian-inspired adult films, close quote, correct? Yes, exactly. All right. Tell it when you say Victorian-inspired, tell us what you mean by that. So, um, I use the phrase neo-Victorian, which is a term that's not typically uh, employed when talking about pornography, but has been around in, uh, there's a field of neo-Victorian studies, um, but typically works with things like um, Tipping the Velvets and other novels and TV shows that are set during the Victorian era or in some way use a Victorian structure, sort mm-hmm. of a Dickensian approach, say. Um, but I'm, I, I had noticed that there was some kind of pattern in pornographic film and literature, in fact, um, that seems to borrow from or play with ideas from the Victorian era or Victorian novels, uh, especially Gothic novels. So um, that, that, that was what I was using the sort of neo-Victorian concept um, to explore pornography, um, which you know, hadn't been done before, and certainly I had to make a case for it, <laughs> because these are not you know, intricately plotted um, films with in, you know, involved character development and things like that, but they were doing something really complex and interesting um, with Victorian era that uh, that I wanted to explore. Okay, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about plot, but again, for listeners that might be uh, might be wondering, the book is not a defense of pornography, correct? No, nor nor is it a condemnation. I understand. All right, so before turning to the specific questions about the book, I know you've been asked this before. Um, I'm sure listeners are wondering, how does a Tulane professor, uh, a self-described quote former anti-porn oh, feminist yes. close quote write such a book. And you do a little bit of indication in the book about how you came to it, and I think most people would be interested in that. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in, in England, um, and I, I think that there is somewhat a very British type of feminism um, that is, I mean, almost, I think, intensifying now. It's sort of coming back to a sort of 1980s um, anti-porn feminism is kind of resurgent, resurging lately. Um, but I grew up in a culture that sort of suggested, you know, pornography is anti-feminist and I didn't really think much more about it, nor had I watched any pornography. It was just kind of a gut reaction growing up. And then when I moved to, um, I mean, I had already suspected somewhere deep down inside, like that there's probably some kind of either bad faith, you know, thing at the core of this or... Um, that it was just a reactionary um, feeling, like it felt bad or something along those lines. Um, And when I started doing my PhD at LSU, I was exploring trauma studies and horror movies and things like that and started to take an interest in um, interracial pornographies as a site of um, a very 19th century slavery rhetoric type 
space. And it, it happened because I was taking a course um, in grad school at LSU with Catherine Hedinger about um, uh, literature and film about um, of racial violence, essentially, um, and trauma. And there was a film, a mainstream 1970s film called Mandingo, which was like this sort of exploitation film. Um, and I had noticed in the video store, back when they had video stores, <laughs> um, in the curtained area where all of the adult film was, that there was a performer um, who went by the name of Mandingo. And I thought, you know, why on earth would, um, you know, a, a, a black man call himself this name? And I thought there has to be more to it, like, you know, than the sort of surface. So I looked into that. I had never considered doing my PhD on that topic. I didn't think there would be anything there. Um, and then I had taken a Dickens class um, because I had to. <laughs> that was an accident, right? I yes, say, right? yes. I just, you know, didn't sign up for courses in time or I didn't satisfy that requirement in time. I was probably procrastinating, didn't want to take the 19th century class. Um, but I'm so glad I did because, you know, I thought, well, I'm not working on this. So how can I make this about porn? Um, and I found this really rich, you know, site of... Um, Dickensian-inspired uh, pornography and ended up working on a film called Passions of Carol, based on A Christmas Carol, which is just a fascinating film, um, much weirder than I thought it would be. And then I realized, oh, m most porn is quite weird, <laughs> especially from the 70s. Um, and I just kept looking and found literally hundreds of um, porn films from across the decades based on Victorian novels. Okay. Well, in the book, you state it, and this is kind of at the outset, that what you're seeking to do is, quote, explore the contradictions foregrounded by the neo-Victorian Gothic and to interrogate how and why porn pornographers persist in drawing pornographic substance and meaning from Victorian Gothic, close quote. So let me kind of ask the big question. Why does the Victorian era show up in such films? Yeah, that, that is sort of like the, the question at the heart of it all, like what is going on here? Um, I think people assume that pornography just doesn't have any thought <laughs> behind it. Um, and a lot of times people have an idea in their head of what pornography looks like, um, and there's not much to it. Um, sort of like, I, I, I know, like, you've seen one, you've seen them all. They're all the same. What, what more is there? Um, but porn, pornographic filmmakers have always been quite countercultural and um, very invested in the product and also very aware of the history. So very self-referential. And the Victorian era is such a strange, um, such a strange time, but especially in terms of how we use it or think about it. So on the one hand, you have it's very uptight, sexually repressed. You know, we're modern. They're not. We're not Victorian anymore. But of course, you know, we have those sensibilities. Um, but then we also have the, um, you know, the fact that pornography as we know it now was really invented during that time. Um, you know, that's when sexology was being developed, you know, so there's this sort of, um, you know, dual identity there that's really fun to play with because you have this upper, you know, uh, stiff upper lip exterior and then in private they're all perverts that that really seems to be the fun of it but they're also playing with and referencing um their own history like their pornographic history well you say and this may be picking up on that you say in the book that 
that, you know, or you ask the question in the book, are the Victorians really that different from us in their struggles with sexuality and repression? Um, and your answer, looking through pornography lens, is yes and no. Right. <laughs> can, you, can you explain that? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> Wait, can you, can you repeat the question Yeah, again? sure. You talk about whether the Victorians are that different from us and in their struggles with sexuality and, and repression or representation. And in answering it, you say the answer is yes and no. Right. Can you explain sure. that? Sure. So, so it, it's kind of interesting. I think that we use them as an origin point. Um, and we, you know, not just in terms of sexuality, but technology, um, you know, especially sort of moving into the modern, most of the technologies that we enjoy now, especially with visual technologies, um, you know, they come from that era and, and with science, medicine, etc. Um, also empire, things like that. So, you know, I think we're fond of the Victorians and we, we enjoy um, a lot of their creations. But in terms of sexuality, I mean, you really, you really do see... Um, very similar rhetoric in in a lot of media nowadays, and also um, you know campaigns against certain things, um, anti-trafficking rhetoric, for example, um, which is you know referred to now often as like modern slavery, which is a phrase that is a, is a development from what they used to call white slavery, which of course is extremely problematic. Um, so I I think that that sort of push and pull. Um, it's an uneasy relationship, but I think most would recognize that we are the same, you know, not that much has changed. So it's funny because when I read it, one of the things that struck me is if you were saying this, that on the surface today, on the surface, we are somewhat like the Victorian age in that we pretend and we say that, you know, these things are off limits. Right. And then underneath the veneer, there's this whole other subculture that's going on where we actually do different things. Is Absolutely. That, that's the Absolutely. And I think that it, it's strangely, um, um, there's an America, quite an American um, trend in, in that way that, you know, coming from the UK to here, there, there is a much more sort of conservative approach, even though the UK has, um, I think people would see it as maybe some draconian laws and, you know, you really can ban a film in the UK. You know, I grew up in the video nasty age where um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I couldn't watch it. You know, they have uh, government controlled media in a, in a sense, whereas here I think there's, you know, freedom of speech and there's this idea that um, it's very liberal, but in fact is quite puritanical um, and yet completely obsessed. Well, and part of that, would you agree, part of that may be that at least in America, we have much of a more religious culture, Definitely. at least historically, Definitely. Uh, than you had in the UK. Yes. And, and I mean, you know, I, th I think there are regional differences, you know, and I'm in Louisiana, so I'm seeing a very, you know, I've only ever lived in Louisiana. Um, so I'm, but, and also New Orleans is an unusual um, place in, in that sense, you know, within the South. Um, but yes, there are... Um, there is a religious influence, I think, that does impact that, that is just not as prominent in the UK. Okay. Well, all right. So from my law school days, mm -hmm. I recalled, at least at one time, it seems that for these films to avoid what were then called obscenity laws, 
um, they had to have at least some indicia of a plot so that the courts would say, okay, well, this is art, right? Yes, redeeming value. Right. And then at some point, after some further court rulings and the tossing out of obscenity laws and all that, the plot idea or the indicia of plot seems to have faded away. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really complicated because obscenity law still exists mm -hmm. and, um, you know, people have been prosecuted as recently as uh, 2010. So, it, you know, they, they were, they kind of came back, you know, the prosecutions came back under the Bush administration. Um, and then under Obama, they kind of petered out. But um, John Stalliano, who owned, well, I think, I think he still owns Evil Angel. Um, they actually threw the case out. So it's not that he won the case. They just they were trying to use a trailer when you're supposed to take the work as a whole, things like that. Um, but I think it's also that because it's by, uh, based on local community standards, it's very difficult to determine what that means now. Um, but it wasn't that long ago that, um, you know, Max Hardcore, who I don't, you know, I'm not a fan of his work, um, is, is extremely problematic and also very questionable um, ethical, you know, ethics in terms of the filmmaking, but the product itself is what got him in, put in jail. He was put, uh, he was in prison for two years for making pornography, you know, so there's some, um, I think people would be quite surprised to know that, right, that yes, you have freedom of speech, but there's a limit. And once it crosses that line, which is very ambiguous when, you know, whether you've crossed it or not, um, then suddenly it's not speech anymore. It's not considered speech. Well, we've had, I think, historically, from a legal standpoint anyway, we've had this evolution of what constitutes obscenity. I mean, I think right. about Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl in the 50s, mm -hmm. which was, there was litigation over that. And Lady Chatterley's Lover, yeah, which is now taught in college. <laughs> Correct. And then, so pornography kind of finds its way into that as to whether or not it's obscenity or not obscenity. Um, let me ask you, let's get back to the book, though, for a minute. You use Lewis Carroll's Alice as kind of a centerpiece in your study. Um, can you tell, what is it about the character of Alice and the Carroll book that you think results in her name or her image being used in pornography? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of interesting when I, you know, when I tell people about the book and they say, oh, what were the, uh, you know, what are the novels? Because first of all, they're shocked that that even what? Porn based on books? How is that possible? But then they want to know, what are the books? And when I name them, Dracula, Jekyll and Hyde, um, Dorian Gray, they, they are sort of nodding along. But when I say Alice in Wonderland, ew, right? Because she's a child. Um, and I think the assumption, because of that sort of, the, the sort of the specter of child pornography, which is often brought up when people are making anti-porn arguments, that that's the sort of, um, you know, the, the the, for the phrase, or the, that's the fear that people will associate with the porn industry, um, and the the pornographic films based on the book have no interest in her being young. Right? It's always it's it's actually similar to some of the um, horror incarnations of Alice in mainstream media, where she's grown up and the focus is very squarely on womanhood, not girlhood. And it's about maturity and, you know, coming into herself, like growing into herself as a woman, um, as opposed to in the book where there's this kind of creepy feeling that Lewis Carroll doesn't want her to grow up. And there's some 
you know, rumored stuff about Lewis Carroll's relationship to the real girl that Alice was based on, um, that, you know, there's still debate over that, but certainly he had an, uh, a relationship of some sort with a very young girl. Right. But, it, but does Alice represent, when I think of Alice in Wonderland, I, Alice represents innocence of a certain degree. Yes. Is that really what the pornographers are playing upon? Sometimes. I mean, they, they are usually uh, looking at some, you know, a girl or a woman, I should say, a young woman who's innocent, perhaps, and then um, wants to explore her sexuality. Right. Um, I mean, for me, the Alice books were always kind of scary, and it doesn't seem like a fun time. <laughs> it seems quite terrifying. Um, she's bullied, you know, and restrained in some way and can't find her way out. She's fighting to get her way out. Um, and then the Looking Glass world uh, is also... Kind of, there's a sense that she's being moved around or um, controlled in some way by this ambiguous force. And in the the pornography, you know, the pornographic films, they seem more focused on letting her out. <laughs> I got you. Okay. Well, let, let's get back to the book for a minute. So, in your study of these films from the seventies to the pattern uh, to the present, excuse me, what patterns did you find concerning the issues of gender and sexuality, which I think is the, the lion's share of what your book is about? Yes. Okay. Um, that it's well there's not not a consistent pattern necessarily but there are the sort of the playing with ideas of passivity and submission with also dominance um that came through very very clearly so there's a lot of um i you know quite surprisingly for me at least um some sort of playing with ideas of like uh, the medicalization of women's sexuality um, there's a short film called Hysteria that sort of toys with that idea. So there's a lot of um, pornography that appears often to be quite violent against women. Um, a film called um, uh, The Naughty Victorians, which is based on a pornographic novel, and a 19th century novel. And that novel is just really just a series of sexual assaults. I mean, it, it, a woman who is kidnapped and raped and essentially you know, educated by the kidnapper and rapist, you know, being taught how to embrace her sexuality, and he's trying to break down these this socially constructed um, feminine modesty. And in the film, that is replicated, but they challenge that narrative um, and change the ending to where the rapist is raped in turn. They all gang up on him. So there is this uh, indulgence in some of that sort of submissive or um, violent uh, content, but also an interest in showing the women to either flip that script or in some way be dominant. That actually came out in the Alice, um, the Alice adaptations a lot. There's lots of BDSM um, Alice pornography where Alice is the dominant. Very rarely the same. It's interesting. I'm going to flip to literature for a moment because you're talking about rape scenes and things like that, which can be really offensive. But mm. one of the cornerstones, as I sat here listening to you, I remember in The Fountainhead by Ahn Rand yes. is rape, yes. and which somehow gets glossed over because the rest of the novel is yes. supposedly, at least, uh, <laughs> you know, her philosophy. Yes. And, and in mainstream media in general, you know, often the, the driving force behind someone's revenge maybe well, a sexual assault. Right. right, and when we talk about Alice as a child, I, I immediately thought of Lolita 
Yes. By Nabokov. Right. Uh, which is still a novel I can't read. But anyway, um, <laughs> now you also, besides exploring gender and sexuality, you also look at how race fits into yes. this. And what, what did you find in that process? That was a very complicated, uh, you know, I, I sort of agonized over that because especially as a white scholar, um, looking at these these uh, representations of race, I mean, I didn't initially feel comfortable writing about it from, from my perspective, but once I was able to draw on some really fantastic um, scholarship by Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Nash and Marae Miller-Young, who both wrote books about black women in pornography and also black masculinity in, in pornography, their work really provided the foundation for me to be able to explore that um, in a more complex way. Um, but my, my initial interest in this topic came from, you know, looking at these uh, 19th century slavery rhetoric, essentially, in interracial pornography. And I found a similar thing where this sort of uneasy um, indulgence in some of that representation, but also mocking it, um, the 19th century set films that were either interracial films or um, exclusively black performers. Most of these were made by um, black uh, pornographers, um, and they seemed to be mocking uh, the mainstream treatments of um, slavery. So, uh, you know, Roots and things like that. There's a Roots parody um, that openly makes fun of um, the sort of caricaturish uh, representations of, of slaves and things like that. So. I would say a very uneasy space, but somewhere that, again, they're sort of playing with these ideas in a way that's quite subversive, prob problematic, um, and also interesting in how they seem to be challenging uh, the supposedly noble and highbrow mainstream texts. Well, and historically, um, you know, there was this false narrative uh, coming out of slavery. We're talking about the 18th after the Civil War forward, you know, of if you didn't protect the white women, the black men were going to attack them all. Yes. And, of course, you know, Ida B. Wells and others wrote really great stuff pointing out that, at least during that time, that was taboo. Of course, you had all the white guys who had their black mistresses, and that somehow was okay. Exactly. And that factors in? I'm asking now the question of it. Yes, so That factors yes. into these films? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, they're calling out hypocrisy, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, not just of that narrative in you know, in real life, quote unquote, um, but also in like Hollywood. So, you. you know, when someone goes to see 12 Years a Slave, um, you know, as a as a white viewer, let's say, what are we watching? Right. And there have been, you know, a lot of criticism about um, films like that, that and they describe them as pornographic. Yeah. Well, let me speaking of that hypocrisy in the book, you reference a quote by someone named Laura Kipnis. I yes. hope I'm pronouncing that right. That reads, at least in part, quote, pornography seems to live on a perpetual standby to represent the nadir of culture on call to provide the necessary opposition to culture's apex, close quote. Again, can you explain that? And maybe you have a little bit already. Yeah, I mean, her, her book, uh, Bound and Gagged, is just a fantastic book. I mean, and published in the 90s, um, but still incredibly relevant. Um, and yeah, in, the, in that quote, she's speaking to this, to the way, you know, pornography will always represent the very worst, the very, the most exploitative, 
um, you know, sickening the the bottom of the barrel and the people who watch it also, right? That there's no intelligence there. And it's sort of a, that's the trash. And in fact, when I would explain certain films to people um, that are pornography, they are pornographic films, um, but they have some complexity to it, they would tell me, well, that doesn't sound like pornography. So it's like, you know, if it does have any meaning to it, then it's starting to inch toward art, which is the opposite of pornography. So pornography will always be without meaning because we'll move the goalposts. Well, you know, it's funny you're saying that because I think I read in preparing for this that pornography websites are either the number one or the number two visited sites yes. on the internet. Um, does that fit into exactly what you're just saying and what you've been talking about, where we have this veneer where we pretend, society pretends mm-hmm. to be Victorian in a certain way, <laughs> yes. and then underneath that, you know, the duck's feet are going fast, <laughs> right. and people are actually doing something completely different. Yes, and, and with lots of, um, you know, self-flagellation, <laughs> you know, this sort of, because, um, you know, those those porn sites that are so popular, that's, the, that's stolen content, right? So why on earth would you pay for trash? So there's this sort of feeling of, um, oh, no, I, I love watching this. I watch it all the time. Oh, God, no, I wouldn't pay for that. It's trash. Well, then why, you know, this sort of strange double, uh, a sort right. of a dual feeling. Well, let, let's bring this current before we have to end here in a few minutes. Um, I understand from the news that one of the industry's biggest stars, Ron Jeremy, or mm-hmm. I don't know whether he's still a big star, was a big star, whatever, but he's facing 30 charges of sexual assault and yes. rape. How does that fit in, if at all, in your analysis of the industry and gender and sexuality issues? I think uh, that that is one of many recent cases. I mean, that's the most high profile because he is so high profile. Um, Those accusations have been around for literally decades. Mm -hmm. Nobody listened, right? No one, you know, it's sort of, you know, where's the Me Too movement for the porn industry? Seems to finally be happening, but it was due to the labor of performers, advocates in the industry, because outside of the industry, very few people seem to listen or care, almost as if, well, that, that's what the industry's like, right? So there's some victim blaming going on there, but it took, I mean, you, you know, decades and hundreds of allegations for, for him to finally, um, you know, be taken to court for those charges to be brought. Um, but, you know, they go back to the 80s with st- really big stars. So very rarely do they make mainstream news. And I think that does speak to this idea that it's this sort of separate world that's gross, right? And we don't take it seriously, but everybody's consuming us. <laughs> well, that, listen, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I'm Mike Tucson. You've been listening to Writers Forum, and I have been interviewing a wonderful interview with Laura Helen Marks about her book, Alice in Pornland. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. This was fun. Good. Until next time. 